Hey guys, this is Marcel from the Visual Friends for the Bicablo Radio. Before we head into today's episode, I would like to make a quick announcement about the VisCon. VisCon 2018. This will be the first visual practitioner conference in Australia and I'm super happy to organize that together with Sketch Group. So the visual friends came together and said let's try to organize a conference for everyone who works visually um, in Australia or New Zealand or everywhere around pretty much to fly in into Melbourne and to spend a day together as an unconference. So the unconference means that we run this as an open space format. Meaning is that you bring your experience and you can create a session yourself as well as if you have a question you can just ask the question there and we might have a session around your question. So everyone on this conference is able to run a workshop or session around a subject. And so far we have a couple of good names um, with a lot of experience um, coming together on, on this day. And we will probably have an amazing day. We start very early in the morning with a fresh Melbourne coffee. Then we have um, the first sessions. Uh, over lunch we have a full caterer who ha will have very very nice food for us and at the end of the day when we close the evening we actually have an after conference um, drinks at a nice bar if you think our oh, one day is awesome more than one day would be better we actually have pre-conference workshops that you can attend the day before. This is then Friday, the 12th of October. We have two sessions planned. One is about visual storytelling and the other one is about visual leadership in regards of session design and how you facilitate groups in front of a bigger audience. In case you say now, well, two days are now great, but can I have more? Yes, you can actually have more. So we put the Picablo training that we run monthly in Melbourne exactly before those days. So that means if you have attended already the Picablo basic class, you can join in again with the graduates discount that you probably know. Or if you haven't, then you can book yourself in into the Picablo basics class and join in um, the Picablo basics training. So you know drawing skills required, you start from scratch. This is your head start into visualization. Next day you have a special subject and on the fourth day in this way, on Saturday, we will have the VisCon conference. So it's like four days of energy if you like. And you find all this on viscon.com.au. Ah, last but not least, one last thing. If you are think I can't wait until October, we have our public training in Melbourne coming up. There are a couple of seats left, so check out the um, website visualfriends.com.au. And if you're somewhere around the globe, let's say in America or so, then please go to bicablo.com. Bicablo.com. This is B-I-K-A-B-L-O. Dot com and you find a full schedule of all the different countries on there with all the Bicablo trainings that we run. Thank you very much and now enjoy the conversation with Jill Greenbaum from New York. Imagine the following. In order to make the most of an opportunity to attend a visual practitioner conference for the first time, you write a book, bring it along and sell it there. 
This might sound a bit crazy, but it's exactly what Jill Greenbaum did when she attended the first IFVP conference in Pittsburgh in 2012. And it has worked out quite well for her, as she is selling her book How to Major in You and Find the Right Colleagues ever since. But of course Jill didn't write the book out of the blue. She looks back on a great career in the field of education. She has studied psychology and education at Clark University before she became a teacher, principal and administrator in various settings in New York City. She ran two non-for-profit programs before she started working for herself in 1996. We talk about her coaching practice and her work as a facilitator with points of view from Israel, who provides inspiring life coaching cards that you can use for life coaching games. Last but not least, we look at her upcoming Picablo trainings in the US that she hosts, her work on the IFVP board and learn that she has even been to Tasmania recently. So please welcome and enjoy this episode with Jill Greenbaum from New York. Our guest today is Jill Greenbaum from New York and um, Jill is a visual strategist, if I'm correct. Uh, yes, it is correct. Thank you. I, I, I've just uh, had a look online. It, it looks like you're more on a, a very beautiful countryside northwest of New York. Is that correct? Or where do you live? Yeah, no, you're absolutely correct. I am on the west side of the Hudson River, just above New Jersey. And as my husband and I had lunch today, and there was a deer walking through the backyard and a rabbit and a squirrel and our dog came outside, I just said, oh, we are near enough and far enough from New York City. We are near enough to get in easily and enjoy it. And we are far enough so that we have nature around us. Perfect. I think that that's uh, that's pretty much uh, like something. If I need to describe where I'm right now, I live near Hamburg, and I looked it up. Like how far you away? It looks like an hour away from Central. The same here. I'm an hour away from Hamburg Central. Uh -huh. So uh, we don't have deers, but we have like not the, those big nice deers you have probably there. <laughs> <laughs> but I have seen a squirrel today. If that helps. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Very cool to, to have you on the show. Um, Jill, if, I'm, if I may ask you a bit, like, uh, have you always lived on, on the country there? And like, uh, where, like, if we go very much back, like uh, a couple of years uh, when you were young, have you, like, did you grow up there? Or like, what, is, what was your childhood like? Where, do you, where have you lived? Sure. Well, I actually, I did grow up uh, in what used to be an old farm. It was called Old Farm Road. So it was an apple farm. And uh, when the apple farm was no longer, there were houses built there, but there was quite a bit of land for each house. So an acre. And it was also an hour outside New York City, but on the eastern side of the Hudson River. So uh, similar, but a little bit different, bit more land, a bit more rustic, because that was a few years ago, I must say. And so I grew up there. I went to college in Worcester, Massachusetts at Clark University. And so that was a, a real city. It was uh, an industrial city. Years before I got there, when I got there, it was a dying industrial city in need of services. I had a great experience there. I enjoyed being in the city. And then I did my graduate work in New York City. I did a master's degree in bilingual special education at a small um, 
graduate school called Bank Street College of Education, and I did my doctorate at Teachers College Columbia University. And so both of those uh, graduate schools are on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. So I did live in the city for a while and then left it to enjoy a, a bit more space and a bit more greenery outside the city. Very nice. And um, when, when during your like early years, when you like uh, were in your education, um, was a visual strategist almost the first thing you wanted to do as a child? And it's like, yes, I, this, that's, that's my profession. I go with that. Uh, what was your, if you look back, what was your list of professions you, want to pick, you wanted to pick? Uh, Marcel, you are too kind. I must say, back in the day when I was growing up, there was no such field in existence. Um, and so I, I must say that the true story around the profession that I believed I would go into was I watched a television show. Back in the day, we would call them specials. And I watched a special and, and learned about children with autism. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's what I want to do. And what degree do I need to pursue to do that kind of work? And so I decided that psychology was the appropriate degree. And that's why I went to Clark University, actually the only place in America that Sigmund Freud's Spoke. And although it's not a Freudian school, it's kind of funny. But um, but I went to college, and what I discovered is that I liked psychology, but I didn't love it. Uh, I really loved working with children, but actually not children with autism. I gravitated more towards children with learning disabilities, and as we used to call them, emotional handicaps. So kids that were really in your face, that really needed your attention. And so I became a teacher, and I actually didn't do any drawing in that capacity. I mean, I enjoyed art throughout high school and actually graduated early from high school and took some classes at, in a well-known school in New York called Parsons School of Design. Um, and so I enjoyed art, but I didn't ever imagine using it in my work when I was a teacher or when I became a principal and an administrator. And so it was quite a long time, actually, until I fell into this kind of work. Mm -hmm. And um, so, so when when you worked as a as, uh, as a teacher, then, like, have like have you then started using like like visual techniques? Like, uh, like of course you have a blackboard probably, but like how that then happened that you transformed into the world of visual facilitation. <laughs> So it was much, much later uh, after I was a teacher, principal and administrator in various settings in New York City, I ran two nonprofit programs to um, I would say social service agency programs in New Jersey. And then I decided to work for myself. And that was 22 years ago. And I used my doctorate in education in instructional design, which is how do you design, develop, and deliver training programs. I started to work for myself and I became faculty with the American Management Association, which is a, um, a worldwide training organization. And I was asked to train one of their courses and we started to learn about in the, in the delivery of this course, the field of accelerated learning. So how do we meet the needs of all learners by understanding how people learn? And of course, with my special education background and understanding the importance of uh, students seeing what they were learning, hearing it, and actually experiencing it, this was a perfect fit for me to learn more about accelerated learning and start to bring drawing into my work. And that's when I started drawing, and it was probably back in 1999. 
uh, that would be my guess. And so I started bringing drawing into training and fast forward uh, a number of years. And I started probably in about 2006 or seven working with Christina Merkley out mm-hmm. of Victoria, mm-hmm. uh, British Columbia. And so I had taken several courses with her. And the last course I took with her, which was called Magic Marker Mastermind, uh, she talked about the International Forum of Visual Practitioners and how a conference was coming up and people from around the world would be getting together and talking about this field. And I was like, oh, I have got to go to that because the real the real hook was that uh, if you had a book, I discovered in looking at the conference website, if you had a book, you could sell it at the conference. And I thought, oh, my gosh, <laughs> I have to create a book so that I can sell it and, and be part of this conference. And so I took what I learned from Christina Merkley and I took my coaching program that I had designed for teenagers around the college admissions process. And I wrote a book about it and I created templates where students could gather all their data. So it was a much more engaging process than what typically happens here in the United States, which is, quite frankly, very cut and dried with a focus on the schools as opposed to a focus on the students. And so that was really my introduction. I know it's kind of a circuitous route for getting there, but that's how I did it. You, you said you, you went to this conference and, and, and you re- if I understand you right, you wrote a book to be part of it. Is this correct? <laughs> that sounds like yeah. an interesting <laughs> I know, it sounds crazy, right? Yeah. Um, What happened was I was already coaching students on the college admissions process because of my daughter's experience. I mean, that's how the book came about. I was already an educator. I understood what the system was like. I had gone through coach training school through Coach U, so I was a coach, and I had started um, creating, designing a, a coaching program for teens based on my daughter's experience, which was good, but I thought could have been great. And Mm. so I developed this program and then having been in Christina's program, I thought, well, let me make this more robust and create templates that students can use to collect their data. So, I mean, I'm literally sitting here right now with the book in front of me Mm -hmm. because, you you know, you can buy it on Amazon or barnesandnoble.com. But in the back of the book, what you find are templates that gather data about students. I ask them to think about What is their world like, like right now? Where are they now? Who's in their community? Who are they? Who are their friends? Those kinds of things. I have another template that asks them to uh, imagine their future. Another one that gets at what are their strengths. And I ask them to take an inventory online. So they're generating a lot of data about themselves because I don't think you can make a good decision about which college or colleges are the right fit unless you know who you are, your strengths and your challenges, how you learn best, how you like to socialize, you know, all those all those parts of being a human. Like, what do you know about yourself? And so I would help students gather that data. And so I created all these templates. They became part of the book. And I showed up in Pittsburgh at the conference and uh, and sold my book. And, you know, I've been selling it ever since, actually. <laughs> and and just say it again, please. What is the title? Major in You? Or how it's do you... Called, that's right. It's called How to Major in You and Find the Right College. Okay. And I put the show note in the podcast on the bottom of it that you can look at it. So that's basically, if I understand you right, that's that's like for for uh, teenagers or for like um, people in, in, in um, um, high school, then a, a way to, to find who they are and, and, and basically fill in the gaps of how they feel. So it's like a self-coaching. Is this correct? It is. And so um, students can, or their parents can purchase it, of course, online. I also do group coaching 
-hmm. with this book as the foundation and also one-to-one coaching. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes the basis of a coaching program. It depends the way you want to engage with it. And if you do a coaching program, that is like a one-to-one coaching with, with one student? In, yes. And, and how long does a coaching program take? Is it a, like, has it a, like a, a number of sessions or like how, how, would, how long would that, it, that take? That's exactly it. So I created um, an acronym that it's called Making the Grade, G-R-A-D-E. So I was trying mm -hmm. to be clever with an acronym and that mm -hmm. stands for Goal Set Research analyze, decide, and evaluate. So those are the five steps in the program. And so I tend to work with students for six sessions, which tends to take between eight and 10 weeks because they have to do research during this program because from the time they start to the time they're done, when they finish, they have their list of colleges that are the best fit for them and they're ready to apply. Mm -hmm. And so it's, um, it's something that it's great if students start in their second to last year of high school towards the end, their junior year, we would call it here in the United States, and, and work on it then. But they can start in their senior year and still get it done. Uh, it's just a very different approach than what happens in school, which is very much based on numbers and the history of the school with certain colleges. So uh, I just I turned the process on its head, you might say, turned it upside down. And you, and you just said that you you have those uh, those four steps, if I'm correct, of a goal setting. And couldn't you walk us through that, like a step by step, what it would mean, like just to get a better feeling, what what this program would mean then for a student? Sure. Um, so the four stages are goals. Uh, the five, pardon me, are goal set, research analyze, decide, and evaluate. So goal set is getting really clear on what are your goals in this process. Where are you now? Where do you want to be? What are you looking for? And so it's very typical for coaching, right? That's a typical coaching question. Where are you now? Where do you want to go? And so I'm helping students figure out who they are and who they want to become because there's so much opportunity at college. And so they learn about their strengths by going online and taking an inventory. Uh, and then we work with their strengths, discovering what they are together and have them leverage those strengths throughout this process. So goal setting is the first aspect. Research has to do with them researching themselves in the sense of what is their academic record? Uh, what are the colleges they might be interested in based on their interests and their passions, their knowledge and their skills? And so what do colleges want to see? And it's different for many colleges. What do they want to see in their applicants? And so students need to think about, huh, what kind of research do I need to do to be a good candidate for the various colleges that I'm interested in? Uh, the next, the third step is analyze, and that's when they come complete a, a portrait of themselves that will help them to match themselves to the colleges. Um, one of the things we face here in the United States, I don't know if you face it also, is that, and I would gather not because I think the education systems in both the countries where you have lived are quite different than the U.S., but we have something called application inflation, which means that students apply to way too many colleges They don't need to apply to that many if they choose the right ones, but they are scared about getting in. So they might apply to 12 or 15 or 18 colleges, whereas the students I coach, because they do good research on themselves and the colleges, only apply to about seven or eight colleges because they have chosen ones that are a good match. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And so, um, so that makes less work for them and makes them feel more confident. Uh, their next stage is um, literally to decide. Once they have their list of maybe 20 colleges, they whittle it down. They get it to seven or eight colleges, and then they make decisions that, of course, are based on their strengths, their needs, their wants, the college environments that will suit them best, meaning are they a very serious student and they want a very serious school that's all about doing the schoolwork? Are they more interested in a bit of partying while they're at college, and is that where they're interested in going, or something in between? So what college environment is going to be good for them? And then they start to get ready for uh, the interviews that they're going to need to do and the applications that they're going to need to write. And they go through that process, and then ultimately E, or the last uh, part of the five-step process, is evaluate, and when they get their acceptances, they need to start thinking again about which is going to be the best place for them. And of course, all this time, they've presumably been going to visit colleges, been talking with people, making their own decisions. And so this process gets them to the point where they can feel confident that they've chosen schools because it it can be very hard to make a final decision. You know, oh, I like these three schools, but you're only going to one place. And if they've done good work, they'll probably be happy at any one of the places that they've chosen because they have worked so hard at it. And so that's the process. Okay, and and um, I'm just when I when I listened to you, I was I was wondering. So it, of course, I know this from the US, like there that it's it's important to pick the right colleges. But like, is this how is it related into the subject you 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 like to study, right? You, it's like it's very focused on the school. I think the the, the difference would be that in Germany or I think the same in Australia is you would decide on the subject you want to study uh-huh. and then find the three schools that are good in that and try to get in. Right. And I I understand that. I think, uh, so there are a couple questions that come up for me when we start to think in those terms is that we're asking students that are 17 or 18 years old mm-hmm. to, make a, to make a decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so... I have so let me tell you just a couple quick stories about that. Number one, we remember my story of I went to Clark. I went for psychology. I actually applied what we call here early decision, which means you choose one school, you decide that is the place for you to go, and if they accept you, it is a binding contract. And so I wanted to go to Clark and I went there, and then I discovered when I was there it was okay, but it wasn't great, meaning my love for psychology. And so I liked the school so much because I looked not just at the subject, but where is it located? What kind of students does it attract? What are other possibilities for me here that I then chose to double major in psychology and education, and I loved education. And I I had such a good match that I finished in three and a half years instead of four and got hired to be a teacher out of my last placement. So when I talk with students, I think it's very important for them to know what they're interested in, what they're good in, where their passions lie, but not for that not to be the only factor involved. So another story would be one of the students that I coached, he was very interested in the Peace Corps and social service and those kinds of things. And so um, he was actually the only student I ever recommended look at Clark. You know, when he came up with his list, I was like, oh, you might want to consider this one too. And he ended up Uh, being such a good match that he got a huge scholarship to go there for every year that he was there, which was very fortunate because he came from a family of four children. Two of the the children in the family had autism 
And so family resources were, uh, shall we say, tight. And so he would not have been able to pay the full tuition to go to Clark, but because he got the scholarship, because he was such a good match, he was able to go. So that's the happy part of the story. An interesting part is that this young man also loved to play soccer. He was on a traveling soccer team, you know, what you would call football. And he got there, he tried out for the team as, you know, a walk-on, you know, so he, he got on the team and he was thrilled and then within two weeks, he was cut from the team. And I saw his mother and I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm so I'm so upset for him. And she said, no, no, it's really OK. He really loves the school. He's got a girlfriend. Everything's fine. Right. And so it's more it is what do you know and what subject are you interested in? But also, what's the environment and are you a good fit? And if you find something isn't working for you, do you have something else to turn to? Or are you going to need to transfer, which is not the end of the world, but it's definitely more complicated. Right. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I want to read something out and now it makes more like it made total sense to me. But like I'm, I'm wondering, I like, try to apply it to to. Um, to your work you just said like on your website you say i help people see their ideas questions conversations and decisions by listening for the essence and then drawing life and large through visual recording facilitation and coaching so mean uh -huh. does that mean like you then when you work in your program you draw with the students together like do you teach them visual facilitation a bit or like um, visual thinking like how, how does it work like that's a, that's a really great question so I have to say that in my coaching program I tend to be the one that does the drawing like when mm -hmm. we're in a coaching session together I'll be drawing and I always work on zoom so I work, can work with students you know uh, in the United States in Canada any place where they have a need you know for the services that I offer so I tend to do the drawing then but I do a lot of public speaking I speak at conferences uh, I speak for what's called Operation Enterprise, which is a youth leadership program. And in those programs at those conferences, there are times where I teach students to uh, think about where they are now, to envision what they want their future to be, and I actually teach them drawing skills. Mm -hmm. And so they then start to draw for themselves where they are now, where they want to be, and the steps they're going to take to move from one place to another. So there is a bit of that that I'm doing with students also. Does that have ever happen to one of your students when they get maybe excited about your work with, with uh, doodling, scribbling, do, taking visual notes, and then doing that in their study and they come back to you, it's like, I got told off for that? Or is that not a problem in the U.S.? Like you in, know, in, I... In, yeah. Mm, I, I haven't had anyone come back and say anything about that to me. Um, you know, I don't know how much they share what they're doing with professors or with mm -hmm. other teachers, but there is certainly a movement in certain places in the United States to bring visual thinking into schools. But, uh, but I would say it's probably not so much in colleges. It's probably more likely that it's in, in elementary, middle, and high schools than in college, which is, you know, unfortunate. It should be everywhere. Absolutely, yes. In in when when we see like uh, who you work with, like students, of course, like uh, who else is your client, and and what experience uh, have you had there with with uh, visual coaching or with finding their their way to uh, find their ideas. Well, it's uh, it's interesting. I'm also a facilitator for a company out of Israel that is called Points of 
you as in Y-O-U as opposed to points of view. (laughs) This is points of view and it is a company that creates card decks that are used in facilitation experiences. And so I'm a, a certified trainer and Back in 2015, I submitted a proposal to speak at the international conference of certified trainers for this company, and I did exactly with them what I did with the students, which was to talk with them about using the cards, the decks, because we are, as trainers, familiar with them, to create a story using the cards with pictures as to where they were in their life right now. I then taught them drawing skills and we created essentially a map. The name of the workshop was draw, draw the cards, draw your vision. And so they drew the cards. They told the story of their, where they are right now. They learned how to draw icons and they used a large template that I gave as something for them to look at. And then they created it themselves either on a piece of paper, small or up at the wall, large. And they drew the steps for what they wanted for their future. And then they drew cards again and created the story of what their future would be. And they were mesmerized. They were in love with it. And because they knew the card decks, but they didn't know how to draw. And now they had a new skill that they could begin to apply. And so it was fabulous. And actually, um, I'm sure you know of the UVIS conference that was just held in Denmark. And I offered at the open space session to share with conference participants what I had done in Bucharest at this particular conference. And over two sessions, I had 18 people come and literally experience the same thing in a, an abridged format. And they were like, wow, this is great. I can do this too. So uh, it's been a fabulous experience teaching people to both draw and to envision and to bring together my coaching facilitation and visual strategy work. And I have to say the, the card decks, the, are absolutely amazing the pictures that are on there very yeah they are so inspiring so guys if you haven't seen that go to points-of-u.com and have a look at their the card deck and the training that um is it right you are then a certified trainer or like a trainer in the yes. us for that yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. so have a look on that too um i'm just looking at their website and let's just see oh nice Oh, that looks good. <laughs> it's yeah, in it's the background stuff. of my screen. Yes. So, um, and, and and apart from that, like, where do you use visualization then? Like, you 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 run the points of view training, um, and you you work with students. Um, tell us a bit about what part or does visual thinking, does visual facilitation, like, as well, is in your life for that? Like, what do sure. you do? Absolutely. And so I still do some instructional design work and so and some coaching. And so before I start working with anyone, I have what I call a strategy session, uh, a complimentary session in which people can tell me where they're at, where they want to go, what obstacles they're facing, what they feel is holding them back, um, what kind of work they want to do with a coach or with an instructional designer. And so I created a template that I that I complete as we're talking during the strategy session. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually at UViz, I did a, a session on templates and I shared that with folks that attended and also in the visual facilitation field guide that will be coming out towards the end of this year, I wrote a chapter on templates and shared some of that information. So I use it for strategy sessions in my business. And I also, um, 
I use visualization, gosh, at this point in everything I do. I mean, when I'm training people in my programs on leadership, communication, conflict resolution, and I call that actually healthy conflict, um, or when I help people understand their styles of interaction with other people, uh, I use a lot of visuals to help them understand what they're experiencing. So whether it's templates or whether I'm drawing for them and, and we're working together as a group, I integrate it now into everything I'm doing. And so it's funny you should ask about this because I'm literally rebranding my work to think more big picture around communication and how does visualization come into every aspect of everything I do. Yes. So I'm hoping that answers the question. Yes, it does. Absolutely. And um, so um, with, with your daughter, like when we, when we go back to that time, like <laughs> how, like she's probably like a bit older now, but like for, for um, any, any uh, like people you like kids you in your life, you say like, I'm playing, I'm, I'm teaching them drawing as well. Or like, um, like in, in child education, like early years, like I am not doing that now, but I have to say, I certainly have, uh, talked with Frank Westler about it because in the United States, since I am the Bicablo representative here, I am starting to work with public groups that come together because they see an offering or in house in corporations. And I actually, uh, have a conversation coming up with two women about bringing visualization to students and to teachers in Madison, Wisconsin. And so um, so it would be my passion and my desire to get back into schools to work with students and with teachers because, I mean, that's where I started in education and that yeah. would be a wonderful place to be. So it is more challenging. We are very driven by uh, standards now, and, and I'm not saying standards are a bad thing, but uh, individual state standards as to what teachers can and cannot do and what there is time for. And so there are challenges around that and there are challenges around budgeting. But uh, I am new to being certified as a Bicablo trainer. I did that in June. So I am just getting started on my quest to bring visualization to children and to teachers also. Great, yes. Um, wh while we talk about Picablo, like um, whenever I was uh, looking for an, an icon or like as Picablo is a, is a visual dictionary, right? Like a, a visual language and yes. has so many icons. It, whenever I ran out of, of icons, I, I went back to to Elena and, and just asked her, well, not today anymore, but when she was like four or five, six years ago, uh, old, then I just asked her, hey, do you know a visual, like how would you draw a whatever? Like, yeah. Uh, and let's say a heart it's like oh that's easy tick 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 or like a, because they they just use um, drawing like to to make sense of the world like they have mm -hmm. no fear to do it wrong right and and uh, with Picablo I think we 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 take away this 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 fear of the people that they could do something wrong on the on the whiteboard and um, basically give them this this freedom back that the, you already had as a child when you, yes. when you were like just thinking with the pen, right? And mm -hmm. John Hibble, one of my, the trainers of the Visual Friends, and, and as well as Danny, kids are so flexible with their mind and, and just can uh, find the right visualization for that while we struggle and, and need Google for that also. Right, we it, make it so complicated. Yeah. Yes. You know, yes. And, and it doesn't have to be at all. I mean, and that's the beauty of, of the technique. Yes. 
And and you said you you uh, well, it's um, it's on the bcablo.com website. But like you you are now the representative for bcablo in the US. When is your next training? <laughs> <laughs> is it monthly uh, in New York, or so where can I fly in? <laughs> absolutely, definitely fly into New York. Um, and in fact, I just two was it. Uh, it was just 10 days ago. I completed a public training in Austin, Texas, which was wonderful. Austin's such a fabulous place to be. Mm -hmm. And I'm starting to actually have conversations later this week with uh, one of the people that was in that training actually came from California to be part of it. And he went back and told a colleague. And so now San Diego may be up next for me. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so I'm thinking October, late October or early November. Um, and so I'm starting to integrate this into the other work that I do, but I'm going to certainly want to do quarterly programming in New York, just because I, there's so much enthusiasm around it. And, and honestly, when Frank and Carola, uh, whom of course, you know, did their USA tour and visited many USA cities and taught the method, I was the host in New York City. And we had someone that came from Canada and someone that came from Japan. And it was just astonishing. So there is uh, not that I want to take folks from Canada or Japan. I know that Bicablo is training there also. But there is such an enthusiasm for this um, that I plan on getting uh, quite orderly about it so people can easily find what they're looking for. And then, of course, I'm happy to travel within the U.S. Uh, because, you know, it's a big country. There are a lot of people and there's a lot of interest. Absolutely amazing. Great that you have that and you actually take away um, a, a pain of, of my heart. Like because I, in the past four years, um, while we were teaching Picablo in Australia, we had like at least one, two, three people every month who asking, hey, do you run this training in, a, in the US? Could you fly over? And we never made the numbers um, that it would make sense to fly over. Like to, yeah. to, and now it's, I think, a much better situation that you run this there and uh, amazing that, you, that the people picking it up quickly. I'm absolutely convinced that we'll, you will be busier soon as you wish. <laughs> <laughs> I think That's so great. too. And yeah. I think it's great. Yeah, yeah, it's really, it's very exciting. But like, I have never been to the US. I have to say that. <laughs> But I, oh. I hear that you have been to Australia. How, I have. How has that happened? Tell us about your visit to Australia or actually you worked there or what did you do? I did. Well, actually, uh, the first time I was in Australia was when I was 14 because my parents loved to travel. And so we went and I, uh, I was also a scuba diver, as was my dad. And so we wanted to go to the Great Barrier Reef, which was fabulous, in addition to many other wonderful places in Australia. So I went when I was 14. My husband and I brought our daughter when she was 14. She totally loved it. And in fact, uh, she did her study abroad at Murdoch. Mm -hmm. So she went to Murdoch University and she almost didn't come home from Australia because she loved it so much. And then I was there this past April for 20 days. I partnered with a woman that I met uh, while doing Otto Sharmer's course. He did a massive open 
online course, a MOOC around leading from the emerging future. And Kelvy Bird was the scribe for it. And I took that course and we had to be in a coaching group. And I met a woman from Tasmania. She was a part of my coaching group. And we became good friends, not just colleagues. And we created a self-care workshop that um, and wrote the grants and were funded by Neighborhood Houses of Tasmania and also uh, the city of Hobart. And so we literally drove around much of Tasmania. I had no idea it was so large and so beautiful. Um, but we drove around for six days and spoke at and worked at, I did the self-care workshop and she did the graphic recording of the workshop. And so we did many sessions around Tasmania and then three sessions in Hobart. And it was wildly successful people just loved quite frankly having a focus on self-care and so I used a template there also so that they could take notes on what they were learning to make it easier for them to capture the information very cool and I have to say like uh, Tassie or as we say Tassie is one of my favorite places too like uh, the wild nature of Tasmania and just go hiking there it's it's amazing so I um, you can uh, easily spend the six days, but like, um, or you do the overland hike in just nine days <laughs> and just cross Tasmania. Um, it's, it's a very, very nice place. And, um, so, um, any plans to come back? I have well, to say. Yes, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we had good success. I'd like to follow up on it and do some more workshops. But I also, one of my passions, as we know, we've been talking about children and parents is I ran a, um, a crowdfunding campaign actually from an Australian platform called Start Some Good. And so I created a card deck for parents based on the hero's adventure, which is, you know, very well-known Jungian archetypes. And, uh, and so one of the nonprofits that was interested in doing some work with these card decks is actually based in Tasmania. So it is my plan to come back next year and run a workshop for that particular nonprofit. And perhaps my friend Julia Curtis and I will make some more rounds to neighborhood houses or other social service agencies in Tassie. Awesome. Very nice. Yeah, we look forward. If you are around uh, Melbourne, um, tell us before and we, we show you Melbourne. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> and the Melbourne coffee. Uh, just to say that, um, we will host, like not the UVIS, not as big as UVIS or IFVP, but we have a small conference, 13th of October, and it's the visconf.com.au, a visualization conference, the first one actually that ever happens in Australia. And a friend of mine wow. uh, from Sketch Group and the Visual Friends together, we, we do, uh, we host the conference. And so if you have nothing to do in October, you're very welcome and hereby invited <laughs> to come around and um, attend the conference. Um, wow, that sounds great. Yes, the first one. We are pretty excited. Like We start small. We only have this year 100 tickets. And then next year we just see what's going on, where, where we can take it, where we can bring it to the next level. Um, last but not least, while we are on UVIS and um, uh, IFVP, I know you have been on the board of International Forum of Visual Practitioners, um, yes. IFVP. So how does it happen? Can you like you just say, <laughs> I want to be on the board and you just you do it and... 
Well, um, I have to say years ago when the board was new uh, to, you know, it was loosely organized many, many years ago. But um, when I was interested, it was pretty much put up your hand if you're interested, um, then yeah, come join the board and, and get to help with the running of the organization and the annual conference and that kind of thing. I'm happy to say that this year uh, there are nominations for uh, a number of openings. And so it's become a more sophisticated process. We've grown as an organization, so people are actually applying for it. And it's, it's very exciting to see the growth and change in the organization. All right. And how many years have you done it or are you still on the board? Actually, I don't I, know. I, I finished on the board in, uh, in July and mm -hmm. I was on it for two terms. So I was mm -hmm. on for four years. Right. Great. Yeah. Thank you for yeah. doing that. It's like for yes. everyone. Good, 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 good on you. Yes. Um, and, and, and so just to like quick question, like you helped to run it, like uh, what was your role or like, what did you involve? Like if, if we have like probably a lot of people internationally who, uh, listen to this podcast and they might have, uh, have surplus to help, what, what do you, what do you need to offer? Like what do you need to bring to, um, apply or like to, to help out there? What, what do you, or maybe in this way, which skills you actually in need of that you, mm. Uh, would like to do a call out for do you know any oh sure mm -hmm. absolutely well so certainly um having some board experience is always a good thing but not a prerequisite you know having been on a board or, or been a member is is important um and yet we have many skills that are needed for instance we have a website that uh our website is quite new actually our newest website is quite different and is continuously growing and evolving. And so there's always a need for people to help with that. Uh, I am still involved in the learning community, which is about uh, the conference and putting the conference together. It's also about getting the word out about what it is to be a visual practitioner. And so meeting the needs also of our members, like what do they want to learn about and what do they want to um, contribute and how can we bring those two things together? So at this point, we have what are called fireside chats where someone will share their expertise or we have graphic jams, which are done uh, through Zoom so people can be drawing. So there are all kinds of opportunity with regard to learning. There's also, of course, we have a treasurer and there's a budget. And so if anyone has financial skills in that regard, that's always something that is valued. And, uh, and we do have a social media committee, uh, which could always use more support because social media is so important and we have a newsletter. I mean, there are so many opportunities. Certainly, we've been talking about it in recent uh, e-zines or newsletters that have come out from the IFVP. And certainly, our website will give more information. But we are looking for people with really time and talent. And, um, and we can find effective ways in which to use them. So it's It's great to also find out what's involved in that. We have a packet of information for anyone that's interested in learning more, like, so what kind of commitment would that be? And what, what are the expectations? Because it's good to go in with your eyes open. Yes, absolutely. And if where should the people go to? Like, is it ifvp.com or where would they find more information if they want to help out? No, it's not. Right. It would be ifvp.org, O-R-G. Mm-hmm. 
And so they can go there. Of course, they're always welcome to get in touch with me. So it could be Jill at I listen, I draw. I'm happy to point them in the right direction. Uh, and there's certainly Lana is our steadfast staff person. And so she also has information about it. So there are many ways to be in touch. Awesome. Um, why are we on, on the point of how to get in touch? I'm just wondering... What way is the best way if people want to go in, um, uh, sorry, <laughs> want to get in touch with you? Like, what is the uh -huh. what is the way that you think, like, uh, if someone is interested in your Picablo training coming up uh, around the US or interested in your coaching program or in the points of view training, what is the best way to get in contact with you? Where, where are you normally hanging out? I'm normally hanging out. Uh, at jill at ilisteneydraw.com. All right. And uh, any any social media so people can follow you? Or it's like... Uh, sure, absolutely. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm Jill R. Greenbaum. That's for my middle name. I'm also on Facebook as Jill Greenbaum. And I also have a page for Major in You, which is my coaching page for teens and, and adults. And I'm also on Instagram, I do a bit of posting there. And of course, uh, for Bicablo trainings, when they become, when they're public trainings and they become scheduled, they will be listed on the Bicablo train under international training. So people can always be looking there or going, you know, try and get in touch with me through Bicablo also, because that's how many of these things are coming about. Marcel, as you said, I'm finding that people from Australia, meaning your colleagues there are referring people to me like, oh, this person's in America and they contacted us and can you be in touch with them and so that's leading to conversations that uh, may mean training in Atlanta in a few months and so there that's another avenue is looking on the Bicablo site yes absolutely yes is there anything like is there any question I should have asked you and I completely forgot is there one like something you would like <laughs> Marcel what please ask me like is there something you would uh, like I, I forgot to which question should I have asked you Gosh, you know, I, I think you've done a stellar job of covering all the bases, as we might say here uh, in America, as we think about baseball. But mm -hmm. no, I think you've done a great job. Um, I, I think you have left no stone unturned, we might say. All right. Um, then I, I think um, I, 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 there's nothing left I can say apart from I put the, all those <laughs> details in the show note. And I want to thank you for this, this conversation. And wish you a great afternoon in New York. Thank you so much, Marcel. It's been a complete pleasure talking with you. Thank you very much for, have, for being on the show. Hey, guys. Thanks again for listening to this episode. If you find it valuable, give us a voting on iTunes. If you like the podcast, maybe hop over onto your iTunes app and just give us a star rating. Leave us a comment so that we know how to improve the podcast in the future. Thanks again and see you next time.